Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords. This is the podcast extension for ROI Show 541. Our guest today is Ed Broders, retired farmer and proud ROI staffer. And we're going to be talking about Canoops Hall Part 2. The history buff for today is Terry Toppler. Terry, start us off. Yeah, Ed, you mentioned earlier that some of your sources for Canoops Hall was your dad, Alberta Knudsen, uh, Ruth Dipke, and others. Can you share with us uh, perhaps one of your favorite stories that they shared with you? Well, I've got some favorite stories. I don't know that they came from them, although Alberta talked about um, how the uh, the fights at the dance, that there apparently were gangs um, loosely organized, but she talked about people coming over from Moscow, which is west of Wilton Ways, and coming from Muscatine, and apparently coming up just to get in a fight. Um, my favorite story along those lines, as I grew up and through the years, I kept hearing the name George Frick when it came to talking about fights at Stockton. And I ran into George's daughter a couple years ago, and I asked her if she had ever talked to her dad about going to Stockton. And she said, oh, yes. She said, I think most of the time he got cleaned up and went over to Stockton just to get in a fight. Now, (laughs) my dad saw what was an altercation between this old guy. Name was Red Tudor. And Red, I can remember from my childhood, uh, he was a a big old guy retired from the railroad, and you could just tell by looking that this was a tough guy that had had a tough life doing a tough job. But my dad said he was up there probably in the 30s, and the details weren't clear, but Red did something to piss off one of the cops. (laughs) And the cop hit him over the head with a blackjack, and the BBs went flying. My dad said Red buckled and kind of went down on one knee and shook his head a bit, came back up, got his wits about him, and he asked the cop, you got another one of them son of a bitches you want to try out? (laughs) Uh, And while I've got a chance here, um, this more alludes to more how how, uh, that was a tough place. But uh, I would say this story, I, I was good friends with one of the one of the men in the story, I was good friends with his son, and I, and I would say there's at least a 75 or 80, 80% chance of this story being true. But there were four guys from Duran, Alvin Lilienthal, Carly Plern, Bill Trady, and Albert Glazer, who apparently had stopped elsewhere before coming to the dance hall. Anyway, that place was packed. They got a seat in the tap room finally, and they sat there and they sat there and they sat there. And Bill Trady said, gee, I wish somebody would clear the table. And Alvin Lilienthal, who was about 6'4 and 250 or 260, said in his best voice, I'll clear the goddamn table. And he took his fist and punched a hole in the middle of the table and shoved the glasses in. And like I say, I, I knew him. And I'd say it's 75 to 80% chance that it was true. He didn't beat up on people, but he had a bit of a temper when it was properly lubricated. Right, right. <laughs> <clears throat> so I'm interested in 
we've we've talked about this being a sort of a meeting point and whatever and you you gave us a long list of people that you talked to as primary sources so as you were doing your research or or just sort of living in the community and hearing the stories and so forth and so on what kinds of things jumped out at you as sort of trends or feelings that you got from people i I guess what i'm wondering is you know did you ever at some point have that sense that somebody was withholding a story that there was something that i'm not going to tell you or that this is embarrassing or whatever because you know oral history is is always interesting in not only in what is told but in what is not told before i came here today i stopped to see mrs um Connie Knutson Koss, and she wouldn't tell me who the the people were that were involved, she said, because you know the families. And this would have been back in the 50s when her folks ran the place, and I don't think it had anything to do with the dance hall, but she said that one of the people she knew had said that her parents and several other couples had had plenty to drink on occasion at the dance hall. And the men would throw the car keys into the hat, and the women would draw the keys out, and whosoever car it was, that's who they went home with. So, I like it. That's the best I can do as far as something that didn't get around. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> that seems like a perfectly reasonable response to me. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, yeah, I mean, there's, I'm sure there was all kinds of things that went on that, you know, have been lost to time and whatever. Um, but one of the, some of the best stories I heard, um, I think it's fair to say over time that hundreds of couples met their eventual marriage partners at the dance hall in Stockton. Sure. Because, you know, it was a big place. They drew regionally. You know, you can get seven or 800 people under one roof, most of whom are single. Right. <laughs> um, and right. if you want to get your hands on a member of the opposite sex in a socially acceptable manner, you go to a dance. Because at the dance with your partner, there might be six or eight inches of daylight between you. And as the evening wears on, there might not be any. Right. <laughs> so, well, and so, I'm, I, you know, I think it's interesting because obviously you have, you've talked about underage folks, you know, drinking at 15 and whatever, um, particularly in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, we have an image of the perpetual chaperone, that there were always chaperones around and, and they were always adult eyes keeping and, you know, keeping track of, um, but it doesn't sound like that's true here, or at least if it is, it's marginally true if the couple wasn't dating uh particularly i think for women they traveled in pairs of and threes or fours or whatever one of the uh, articles i i ran across from august of 1895 is a little blurb in the bluegrass news talking about three young women boarding a train on a saturday night to go to stockton for the saturday evening dance and there was a line that ran from Bluegrass to Stockton. And so I think that's how it was done. That was kind of like, I remember in the 70s, 
you know, girls always came in two or three or four. Right. They all traveled in a pack or at least a couple. So I don't think that changed over time. Okay. Terry. Well, after you told, talked about the keys in the hat story, I'm thinking, yeah, that's why we have surprises when people do their DNA on uh-huh. Ancestry. <laughs> we find, oh, maybe I'm not as German as I thought I was. Uh, but <laughs> having said that, you had mentioned, too, one of the culture's um, characteristics of coming from Schleswig-Holstein was about their reluctance um, or maybe they're wondering about government intrusion. And so my question next is, with the dance halls, I assume permits were required by the state. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that, about what kind of regulations were there for these dance halls? I don't know how much regulation there would have been prior to prohibition. I'm not sure when the legal drinking age was established in Iowa, and I also don't know when it really started to matter. I talked to a fella who is 86 and went to Stockton in the 60s, and he said that he said, I was underage, but he said everybody knew that when you went to Stockton, the police were there for security purposes and nobody nobody checked IDs. Well, and, and I don't know that that was much different. I can think as a teenager, so we're talking about the early 70s, early to mid-70s, when the, the drinking age was 18, I can remember being... 15 and a half or 16 and going to any number of establishments and getting served hard liquor. You know, you, you just, I think there was a point at which, and I can't tell you when it happened, but for a long time, there was kind of a sort of buyer beware approach. I'm not going to, you know, don't tell me how young you are. I'm not going to ask. And if something happens, it's on you. It's not on me. And I think, you know, that, that certainly changed eventually, but I think it was there for a long time. I had a high school classmate. I graduated in 1973. I had a high school classmate with his fine felt tip marker and a ruler was making fake Idaho driver's licenses on the back of check stops. <laughs> so okay. some things never changed. <laughs> right. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> Terry. Yeah, Ed, you mentioned also using newspaper ads um, to garner some information about this time period and about Knut's Hall. Can you share with us what kind of information did you find? Was anything that was surprising to you? In regarding these ads? One of the things that didn't show up very often, and there were more ads for other dance halls and such, but one of the things that didn't show up was the starting time of the dance. Mm. Um, But I was surprised, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I was surprised that WMT and Cedar Rapids had some sort of involvement with so many different bands. And, you know, WMT was a very powerful station, and it would have gone on all other sides of Cedar Rapids as well. You know, it was a radio station. But otherwise, I don't know that I saw anything terribly surprising. One of the interesting things that has fallen by the wayside, and this was quite common even up until in the 70s and into the 80s, uh, the dance halls would have dances 
shortly before or after Thanksgiving that were known as feather parties. And in those days, a lot of people on the farm raised ducks and geese. Um, I don't think very many turkeys, but capons were not uncommon either. Um, And so they... I know they had them in Walcott. I know they had them in Stockton. But you went to the feather party, and I think you bought chances on a raffle for one of these birds. And so every so often, they would, somebody would draw a ticket out of the hat, and you could come up and pick your bird. And I also, my sense of it was as well that some of those were just you signed your ticket when you came into the place, and those went into a separate hat. So you could potentially win something. But those have largely fallen by the wayside. But they were extremely popular because they were at the end of harvest season when, as we talked about earlier, maybe some people had been at home for a long time bringing a crop in and whatever. But I'm always sorry sorry I never went to one. (laughs) Well... We could go on and on, but we need to draw this to a close. We want to thank our guests for this 541st show, Ed Broders, retired farmer and proud ROI staffer. We've been talking about Canoops Hall Part 2. Our history buffs today were John Keeley and Terry Toppler. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at tunein.com. If you're looking for older programs, you can find them at soundcloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. And you can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.